0: Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us definitively uh, through your word. We thank you that we can uh, read your word together, that we can gather together to hear from it. Lord, we pray that you would um, bless these next few minutes as as we read and as we study. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. So that we can see you, and we pray that you would then uh, give us grace so that we can respond with, uh, with faith and with worship. And it's in Jesus' name that we, that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 1. It says, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Naaman was total rock star in, in the, the, the country of Syria, right? Uh, head of their armies. Your, your Bible might say he was the head of the, the nation of Aram instead of Syria. Same thing, uh, just diff- different names for the same, uh, same country. But, but Naaman is pretty much one of the top guys, right? He reports directly to the king, and he uh, oversees the king's military efforts, most, many of which have brought all kinds of you know, victories and all kinds of plunder and all kinds of spoils of war uh, kind of into the country. And so, so Naaman has gotten super rich because he gets a share of all of those spoils and the king has gotten super rich. And so the king likes Naaman, uh, thinks highly of him. The people like Naaman and think highly of him. He is, you know, total, things could not get uh, any better for, for Naaman. He is a uh, top dog in a, in a military powerhouse of of a nation. Everything is going great, except this last phrase in verse 1. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So Naaman, uh, things are going very well for him, but he's got leprosy. And leprosy in Scripture... Uh, is kind of a blanket term to to describe any number of different uh, infectious skin diseases, but more often than not, when you see it, it's referring to uh, something that is today known as Hansen's disease, which is a, a kind of a bacterial infection that gives you lesions on your skin, but it also causes nerve damage. Um, it causes you to lose feeling in your in your limbs. Uh, they go entirely numb. It would cause physical weakness. It would cause um, uh, like your it would it would affect your eyesight um, you 'd go go blind over time eventually you 'd die from it right eventually you'd die from, from leprosy one of the you know oftentimes how it would uh you know Manifest itself is you have your your limbs go numb and you would injure yourself but you wouldn't be able to feel it and so those injuries would go untreated over time they'd get infected if they're not cleaned or you know treated properly and so you'd have to either amputate limbs or your limb would literally just uh, fall off it it would just it would die and and fall off so it was a really nasty really uh, ugly disease. Uh, It was super contagious. You got leprosy. You contracted leprosy from being in close contact with someone else who had it. Which means that communities as a whole would quarantine people that had leprosy, uh, they or people that were even suspected of having leprosy. Right? They would they would kind of make sure that they were in isolation so it wouldn't spread to the rest of the healthy people. There was no treatment. There was no cure. It was a devastating diagnosis that was effectively a death sentence. A, a slow, painful, awful, terrible death sentence. And so Naaman had a lot going for him. And that he was you know, one of the, the, the most powerful men in the entire nation of Syria. And uh, the king esteemed him highly and the people esteemed him highly. Men wanted to be like him. Women wanted to be, be with him. Eat, right, But he had leprosy, so none of that mattered at all. And, and and he just had this ticking time bomb uh, of, of a disease that he knew was going to kill him. Presumably, as we'll see when we work through the story, uh, Naaman, uh, his, his condition probably was not uh, that advanced, uh, given how he... Uh, you know, is able to interact with other people. He still, he still works at his job and he still uh, interacts with people. And so maybe he has a very, um, you know, kind of early stages of this disease, but he knows that he's got a very serious disease that's probably going to mean, it's probably going to kill him. And it's pr- his death that's going to come inevitably from, from leprosy is probably going to be preceded by an extended period of time in quarantine and isolation and, and loneliness. So this is a heavy burden that he's carrying around verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So Syria and Israel were frequently in conflict with one another. We saw kind of an extended description of their conflict in 1 Kings chapters 20 through 22 so you can uh, flip back there and kind of revisit if if you'd like during the, the week. But uh they, they, it, it wasn't just like a brief skirmish, it was a recurring thing. Israel, Syria were kind of constantly uh, embattled against, against one another. And Naaman, again, led the efforts of Syria's uh, you know, pursuit of and raiding of Israel. So they were constantly just trying to you know, push their borders back and expand their territory and get, get leverage. So if you're, if you're a citizen of Israel at this time... Naaman is not a good guy, he's not a neutral guy, Naaman is a bad guy, Na- Naaman is like a terrorist, uh, you know, he's on the short list of the worst terrorists that you can think of because he's a, you know, he, he is a bad, he's an enemy of the state, he is the head of the armies that, that are terrorizing and attacking you and your people and threatening your nation's, you know, uh, security. And so Naaman was a was a bad guy, and this is how bad he was during one of their battles, one of their raids, you know, and, and raids and battles in, in, you know, in the ancient world were not pretty, right? They, they were, it was just Lord of the Flies, just really, you know, no rules, no Geneva convention, and so you just come in and you would kill people indiscriminately, and you would take anything that was of value, and anything that you didn't take, you'd probably just burn or, you know, destroy so that they couldn't. You know, repurpose it uh, later. And so, yeah, and you, you take people into slavery. And so they, they took this little girl uh, into slavery. They kidnapped her from her parents and took her into a foreign land and trafficked her into slavery. I mean, if her parents were even still alive, they might have, they might have died during, during the, the raid. But they take this little girl from her parents, traffic her into slavery. Naaman takes her as a slave into his house. So it's a, a small little child, a little female child who is, you know, doing slave labor, manual labor around Naaman's house, you know, chores and housework that his rich wife is not uh you know interested in, in, in doing. Naaman is a bad guy. Right? He's a He's an enemy of the people of God. Uh, uh, you know, he terrorizes them. He traffics uh, human beings into slavery, little children into slavery. He doesn't worship. He worships false gods. He doesn't worship the true God. He doesn't worship at the temple in Israel. He's not a stand-up guy. He's a, he's a he's a bad he's a, a villain in this story, which makes verse three all the more. Striking. To so this little girl who's in the land of Israel, who's taken, and she's working in the service of Naaman's wife, she says to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Right? Here's a little girl who's been taken, kidnapped, taken into slavery, and says of the man who did it, of the man who took her into slavery, of the man who is currently. Enslaving her, right? You would expect she might say, "I'm glad. I'm glad he has le- like serves him right, right? He has sinned against me in this terribly grievous way. Treats me like property. I hope he has. I hope he gets leprosy. If he has it, I hope it's bad and painful, and I hope he dies from it. That's what you might expect." Uh, a slave in Naaman's household, to say, who was recently taken as a prisoner of war and and kind of put into to slavery in his, his home. And yet she says, even though, according to the world, I would have every reason to hate Naaman, every reason to seek revenge against Naaman, every reason to delight in uh, pain and suffering that Naaman experiences... The fact of the matter is I love God and that's not how God treats people who sin against him and so that's not going to be how I treat Naaman even when he has sinned against me. So I'm not going to deny that Naaman has sinned against me. I'm not going to pretend like it never happened but I am going to forgive and I am going to love and I'm going to seek his his well-being even though he has not done that for, for me. Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For God makes his son rise both on the good and on the evil, and God sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. So if, if, if God... Is, is willing to be gracious to wicked people and unjust people, then God wants his people to, to love and pray for their, their enemies. 1 Peter 2, we read, To be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For it is commendable if someone bears up under pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But if you endure suffering as the result of doing good, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, so seek the good of your masters, serve your masters, even when they are mistreating you, even when they are sinning against you. And here's why. Here's why Peter says we are to do that. You've been called to this because Jesus Christ also suffered For you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So this girl is obeying this scripture that won't be written for centuries, but she's obeying it preemptively here. Follow in Christ's example, follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth, and yet when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus, even as he's being persecuted, even as he's being mistreated, does not retaliate. He loves the very people that are mistreating him, and the culmination of that love, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this little girl says, You've hurt me. You've sinned against me. You've reviled me. You've caused unimaginable pain to me. But I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to seek revenge. Instead, I'm going to see to it that you are healed and that you are. There are tons, more than you can count, right? There there are tons of um, prefigurings and and pictures uh, of of Jesus in the Old Testament that that kind of anticipate who he is and what he is going to be, that foreshadow his life and his heart and his ministry. And you could argue that this little girl in 2 Kings 5 is right there at the top of the list of someone who represents and anticipates the heart of and the ministry of uh, and the grace of Christ for his people. She tells Naaman where he can go to be, to be healed. Friends, if, you're, if your first response when you are sinned against is to get revenge or to fight back, or to get even, then then maybe take some time and meditate on how this little Israelite slave girl responds when she's sinned against. Or take some time and meditate on how Jesus responds when he is sinned against. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his Lord... Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, right? He tells his, uh, the king, the king of Syria, hey, I've been told that there's a way that maybe I can be healed. Verse 5, and the king of Syria said, now go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. So, so Naaman goes to the king, and the king says, Alright, the, the, the girl said that there's a prophet who can cure you. That's below our pay grade. We're not going to the prophet. We're going right to the king. We only talk with heads of state. So, so I'm going to send a letter from you to their king, and I want you to go to their king and, and take, take a bunch of money, take a big gift so that we can really impress them with how rich we are, and we'll see if that will kind of make them straighten up and, and move around a little bit on your behalf. Verse 7, and then when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, and he said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man, this king of Syria, sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel says, uh, what, does it, what did you come to me for? Right? I'm not a prophet. I'm not a priest. My job is to run the, the nation. I don't, have, I don't have special access to the Spirit of God to perform signs and, and wonders and, and miracles like, like that. Which is kind of a, a, a fairly unique uh, position for a king in the ancient world, to acknowledge that there is a, a boundary to his authority, or to acknowledge that there is someone else who has a jurisdiction that might trump his, particularly in matters of religion like this. So for a king to say, "What you know, this isn't my domain, I'm, I'm not a prophet, I'm just the, the king. Um, most kings in the ancient world, except for Israel, uh, actually... Uh, saw themselves as they thought of themselves as gods here on on earth. They referred to themselves as gods. They demanded that their people would worship them as gods. They they demanded that their people would pray to them as as gods and offer sacrifices to them as as gods. And so, it's it's very possible that the king of Syria is just thinking like. Why go to a prophet who's a man who serves the gods and tries to ingratiate himself to the gods so that the gods will do what he wants? Why go to that guy when we can just go to the king who, if he's, any, if he's half as good as I am, he himself is a god. Let's go to the, the god who lives among men. And the king of Israel, many of the kings of Israel get a lot of things wrong throughout the books of First and Second. Kings But of all the things they get wrong, at least this one gets this right he says i 'm not a god don 't bring this request that 's fit for a god to me because I am not a god, nor am I even a, a prophet or a priest i 'm a king kind of I stay in my lane it 's a separate uh, thing. And he also thinks maybe this is a trick right maybe he 's trying to embarrass me. He's trying to shame me. He's trying to ask me to do something. And, and he's kind of like sitting back watching for me to try and fail. And then he'll laugh at me, or then they'll, they'll use it as a, you know, a distraction to attack me or something like, like that. So he's a little bit uh, skeptical of the, the motives of the king of Syria. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent the king, he sent to the king saying, king, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel, right? You know, I, I get it and I agree with you that you're not a prophet and you can't heal him, but hey, what am I, right? Chopped liver, send him to me, I can, I can take care of this. And so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and he stood at the door of, Elijah, of Elisha's house. So Naaman is traveling, again, uh, tons and tons of silver and gold and gifts and money and people and a huge uh, caravan that he's traveling with and he brings this massive entourage with all of this stuff to uh, Elisha's humble little, you know, house that he bought with, you know, people's tithes and offerings is a humble little house and a massive he's trying to paint this like huge like disparity here this huge contrast between uh Naaman the Syrian rich caravan all of you know and then Elisha's little home that he that he comes up to seeming to imply that that Naaman uh thinks man I am I'm a big deal, right? I'm a big deal. That's why I have all this stuff. That's why I have all these people. I have a huge motorcade, right? Everyone, you know, walks on eggshells around me and rolls out the red carpet for me because I am a big deal. And so surely Elisha is going to do that same thing with with me I expect that he's going to have some, you know, special treatment for me. I expect that he's going to have this big fancy production with all this pageantry. He's going to wave his hands and say, "You're healed now." Or maybe he'll maybe he'll have a big mythic hero's quest for me to go on, go get the I don't know, the the heart of a dragon and bring it back and I'll do it because I'm strong and powerful. like There's going to be something big and grand and magnificent that's going to happen that's going to culminate in me being healed from this leprosy. I can't wait to see what happens when Elisha beholds the glory of my presence, the presence of Naaman. Verse 10 And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Doesn't even come out to greet him in person right if, imagine if the president of the united states you know came to, to visit came to your house you know flies on air force 1 lands at the airport gets gets onto the the hell what's the helicopter marine 1 goes to the the whatever the car is called uh, and, and rides in you know big motorcade with 30 cars you know around it and they come up and there's secret service dozens of agents buzzing all around your house and they get there and then they knock on your door and you send your teenage son out to hey tell the president i'm busy i can't talk right now uh, send him this message for me cuz am i'm i'm not uh, he he's not worth my my time that's kind of the what what is what is happening elisha is saying to uh to Naaman, you're not as big of a deal as you seem to, to think you are, right? You, you uh, seem to be under the impression that you're a really big deal, and I'm here to tell you that you're not that big of a deal. God is a big deal, and none of us are. So, so don't be as impressed. Like, you are far more impressed with yourself than you are of God or even the prophet of God, and we need to kind of reorient a little bit. So Elisha sends a messenger, and here's what the messenger says. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Which is not what Naaman was expecting to hear. Again, Naaman is expecting, right, big, grand gestures, right, fireworks. Naaman is expecting, you know, for for Elisha to say, I declare by the power, right, vested in me, like, you are healed, and everyone's going to clap, and it's going to be a big celebration, or he's expecting, what's the big, hard thing that I'm supposed to go do, right? Where's all the pomp and circumstance and the the grand gestures and and, and pageantry? Where is is all of, of that? And he's mad about it. Verse 11, right? Naaman was very angry, and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the, over the place and cure the, the leper, right? I thought I was a big deal. I thought that there was going to be this big procession, and this is so small and ordinary that, frankly, it's, insult, it's insulting to me, right? I'm a big deal, and I'm told to go wash in a... And, and in the, the Jordan River... Right? Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? I came all the way here to Israel with all of these gifts and all of these people and all of this stuff. And it's a little bit anticlimactic to arrive at the the home of the prophet that's supposed to be able to heal me. And he says, wash in that pathetic, small, polluted, you know, lame river. I've got we've got better rivers back at home that are bigger, cleaner, fresher, more impressive, more exclusive. Can't believe I came all this way and then this prophet insults me with this prescription that is so far so far beneath me, right? Any normal person could go swim in the Jordan River. I'm not normal, I'm superior. Right? I am extraordinary, and the, the prescription that was given to me is downright ordinary. And he turned and he went away in a rage. Naaman thought he was a big deal. He'd accomplished a lot, he'd accrued a lot, he was a man of means and resources and stature, and his plan was to leverage those accomplishments and leverage those resources, right? So so that he could, you know, have or obtain something that no one else could do, so that his healing could be a testament to how great he was. But Elisha told him to wash in the Jordan River, something that anyone could do, of course, in that scenario, your healing is no longer a testament to how great you are, but rather your healing is a testament to how great God is and the power of God working through the prophet uh, elisha and Naaman is furious when the idol that you worship is the idol of self and 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 being. Glorified and praised and, and having other people stand in amazement at you when that's the idol that you worship then when that idol is robbed of its glory when someone tells you that the glory that you thought was reserved for yourself is actually it belongs to God and God is not going to share it with you that is that will make a person angry it makes Naaman angry he turns and he goes away in a rage. Verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you to wash and be clean? So the prophet, in, in the ESV, the, 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 the servants come to him and say, Look, uh, this is good news. We, you were told that you're going to be healed, so let's just go to the river and wash and be healed which uh, might not be the best rendering. Uh, most other translations have a different nuance to it. Um, it's something along the lines of, uh, of Father, uh, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, something difficult or grand or heroic, if he had told you to do something like that, wouldn't you have done it? Like, you came all the way here, and you were expecting to have some sort of heroic, mythic quest to go on, and if he had told you to do something like that, wouldn't you have done it? And the implied answer is, yes, I would have done it. That's why I came here. I brought all of this money because I was expecting it to be expensive. I'm a big, strong man. I was expecting it to be difficult, and I got here, and now what I was told to do is not not difficult at all. It's not grand or heroic at at all. And they say, "If, if he had told you to do something like that, wouldn't you have done it? The implied answer is yes. And then they say, well, then if you would have been willing to do something difficult like that, then why not do something simple like wash in a river? It stands to reason that if you would have been willing to do something so difficult, then you should be all the more willing to do something that is so easy, especially when you're healing, your very life hangs in the, in the balance. The servants basically say, I get that you think it sounds crazy for a man of your stature to travel all this way with all of these gifts and all of this money only to, you know, come and wash in a river. I get that that, that sounds and feels crazy to you. But you know what's even crazier? For you to travel all this way... And be told to wash in a river and be assured that if you do, you will be healed. But then you refuse to because you're too prideful. Because that prescription is beneath you. So so swallow your pride and let's do what the prophet is telling us to, to do. Which is a good word for Naaman to hear. Kind of pricks his conscience a little bit in verse 14. He went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child and he was clean. The, the leprosy disappears instantly and miraculously and he's got a clean bill of, of health because he humbled himself and listened to Elisha's instructions. There are, there are a couple, before we move on, There are, there are two, like, massive gospel themes that I want to point out of what's going on here with, with Naaman and his, his healing. Two, uh, two realities about God and His grace and how God relates to His people that we can kind of pull out of this this text. And the first is that God's grace is available for, for anyone And everyone, right? There's, there's no one on planet Earth who has sinned so grievously, right? That they can't repent and turn to God and trust in Christ and be saved. Remember, Naaman was a bad guy. He was, you know, Mount Rushmore of like the enemies of the state in in Israel. He was a human trafficker, terrorist. Didn't know God. Didn't care about God. And God looked at Naaman and God. Decided to save, name it, right? So God's grace is available to anyone and and everyone. And there's two sides of that coin. There's 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 a word of encouragement, and there's also a word of warning in that in that reality that we should that we should note. Right? The first is for outsiders, people who are far from God, people who have committed all manner of of sins, and people who are enslaved to addictions or whose lives are a total mess people who feel like there's no room for you in the church because there's that that's a place where good righteous moral people are and i could never be there for 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 outcasts like that right this this story and this reality that god's grace is available for anyone is is good news that god loves sinners god saves sinners That was true of Naaman. That's true of all of us. So so take heart, right? If you're you're an outsider, if your life is a mess, take heart because God stands ready to to save you. That's one side of that, that coin that God's grace is available for anyone and everyone. And the other side is a warning for those who understand themselves to be insiders, who understand themselves to be close to God, whose lives uh, look relatively polished and in order and free from all of the sins that we judge other people for, right? For people who look down on others and, and think that salvation is and should be reserved for them and for people like them. For people who don't want bad people coming into the kingdom of God, lest they Ruin, you know, like they, I don't want them to track mud all over the floors of this pristine, pristine house that we have kind of made for our, ourselves here. For people who, who think like that, this story of Naaman is a rebuke, right? The idea that God would save and heal a Syrian was, was scandalous to a person in ancient Israel. And, and God did it on purpose as, a, as a, a correction, as a rebuke for the people that might have that kind of self-righteousness in their In their souls. And Jesus references that in Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, Jesus is reading from Scripture and he says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when there was a great famine that came over all the land. But Elijah was not sent to any of them, but only to a widow in Zarephath. That's a Gentile. And there were many lepers in the nation of Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. right? So, so Jesus is saying, God loves to save sinners, but God is not obligated to save only the sinners that you approve of, only the sinners that look like you and think like you and the the sinners that would not threaten to disrupt the status quo that you have become accustomed to. God saves sinners from anywhere and everywhere. God's grace is available to anyone and everyone. That's one point that we can kind of tease out of this story uh, with Naaman the Syrian. And the, the second is this, that God's grace is given on his terms Often through ordinary means. God's grace is given on his terms, often through ordinary means. Again, think about Naaman's expectations, how he expected to be healed, and, and how that contrasts with how he was healed. He shows up, I'm a big deal, I'm the commander of the army, I have servants, right? Well, how, how are you going to be healed of your leprosy then, Naaman? Well, obviously it would be expensive, Not a problem for me. I've got plenty of money. Obviously, it'll be difficult. Not a problem for me. I'm really strong and really powerful. Right? Naaman's expectation, which is why he showed up with a huge caravan and all this money and all these gifts, and how does God heal him? I don't want your money. I don't need your money. I'm not impressed with you. Here's what you can do to be healed, Naaman swim in a river, in a small, pathetic little river. Swim there, and you'll be healed. Anyone can do that. A child could do that. That's the that's the point, right? Naaman's thinking, if I, if, I if, if that's all I had to do, then why have I spent my whole life making all of this money, accumulating all of these possessions? Why have I spent my whole life trying to be and, and uh, aspiring to be extraordinary when when now I'm finding out that God gives grace to people through means that are downright. Ordinary, And that's exactly the point, and that's exactly how the gospel works as well. God's grace is available to anyone and everyone, absolutely true, but you can't buy it. You have to receive it, right? You receive the grace of God by confessing that you're a sinner, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not powerful enough, I need a savior, I cannot save myself, so I'm going to look to Jesus instead of myself to save me. My righteousness is not sufficient, so I need Jesus' righteousness to be imputed to me. When I stand before God, I'm not going to appeal to myself. Instead, I'm going to appeal to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Accepting the gospel, in one sense, is very easy. Anyone can do it. And in another sense, it is incredibly difficult particularly for the self-righteous and the self-reliant and the self-assured. Which is why Paul says that the gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to people like that. It's a stumbling block, meaning that they, they trip and fall over the idea that they are not good enough. They trip and fall over the idea that they need God's grace, and they even need the same grace that, that, that bad people need. They trip and fall over the idea that bad people have access to the same grace from God that they have. When Naaman heard to go swim in the river, he was scandalized and thought, that's so ordinary that it's insulting and I'm not going to do it. And when a righteous person when a person who considers themselves to be righteous hears the gospel to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, they respond just like Naaman did. I'm not gonna, that's, that. Anyone can do that. If that's all that I've had to do, then why have I spent my whole life trying to be moral, trying to be righteous, trying to be religious? Why have I spent my whole life trying to be spiritually extraordinary, and now I'm finding out that God gives grace to people through means that are downright ordinary? story of Naaman shows us that God's grace is inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive in that it's available to anyone and everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, where you've been, but God's grace is exclusive in that the ordinary means that he has set up to receive it can only be embraced by people who are humble and broken. And it will inevitably be despised by people who are prideful and self-reliant. The story of Naaman shows us that God's grace is inclusive, that anyone can come, but it's exclusive because only the humble will come. God's grace is available for anyone, but it's given on his terms through ordinary means of repentance and, and faith. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man, uh, he and all his company, and they came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel, so now accept a present from your servant, right? There's got to be a catch, Elisha, right? This is an incredible miracle that's happened. What can I do to, to, you know, pay for it? But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing, Right? Naaman, it's free. You can't buy it. And he urged Elisha to take it, but Elisha refused. Right? He's driving the point home. You can't pay for it. Right? God's grace is free. You can't buy it. You can only receive it. Verse 17, then Naaman said, If not, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So, Elisha, uh, I've I've been healed, I've been saved, and now I recognize that my gods that I worshipped in Syria are false. And I'm only going to worship the true God from this point forward. And I want to worship the true God on the the land that, that, you know, if God has kind of made this this nation of Israel sacred, then I want to worship God on that sacred ground. So I want to take this earth back to Syria with me so that I can worship God on on the land of, of Israel. Naaman is is converted and wants to worship God. But then he has this kind of question, this kind of concern about his uh, vocation and what that's going to look like back at home. He says, verse 18, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this Matter so Remon was the the god of syria he 's the god of thunderstorms and and, and uh, you know rain and thunder and Naaman says i 'm not going to worship that god anymore i 'm not even going to go in his temple at all except in those unavoidable occasions when my official duties as the king of the military as the head of the military require it i 'm not going to worship false gods, but I do still have a job, and so I need to figure out how to be a good employee without compromising my faith and my integrity as a a believer and a follower of, of God. And so there's going to be times when I have to, as the king's right-hand man, I've got to help the king walk in. If he's old, maybe he needs to lean on me, or maybe he needs me as his bodyguard to kind of watch out and make sure no one's going to try and assassinate him. So if if I find myself in the temple of this false god, if I even find myself kind of kneeling before him as the king is leaning on me and says, hey, I want to kneel, so help me kneel down, I want you to know that, well, A, should I do it? Like, will God forgive me for doing that? And Elisha says, go in peace, verse 19. Meaning, it's okay. Like, I, like I, I hear what you're saying, I get what you're talking about. And that's, right, uh, don't, you know, only worship God from this point forward. Don't ever worship Rimon again. And so, if your job requires you to worship that God, then don't do it. You can't. If the king says... I want you, Naaman, to kneel down and worship this God. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Then don't do it. If you perish, you perish. But if you're just helping your boss walk in and your boss is the one worshiping this God and you're not, and you're you know, very clear on that, then sure, that's fine. Right? Be a good believer and worship God only, but also be a good employee and, and do your job and serve your boss. That's not, that's not a problem. So Naaman heads back home. Skin is clean and smooth, ready to go back to Syria and live as a godly believer in a foreign land. But when Naaman had gone a short distance, verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Gehazi wants to cash in on this Miracle that's just that's just happened, and look specifically at the language that Gehazi uses, and see what it tells us about his underlying motives. He says, "My master has spared Naaman," meaning like he let him off the hook, right? Naaman Naaman was a bad guy; he deserved leprosy. He should have died from it. He's He's an enemy of the state. He's an enemy of God. He's an enemy of the people of God. Right? So he should have had leprosy. And if not, if if he's going to be healed of leprosy, then we should have at least extracted a pound of flesh. Like we should have at least taken his money. Like we should have made it hurt a little bit, because he's a bad guy. I don't want bad I don't want God's grace to be given to bad people. Just a chapter ago, Elisha provided oil for a widow and her family. Gehazi wasn't complaining about that. He uh, gave a a child to a barren woman. No complaints there. He raised that child from the dead after he died. Gehazi was on board with all of those. But there's something different about Naaman. and It's that Gehazi thinks Naaman is a bad guy. And he doesn't deserve God's grace. And if he's going to be blessed by God, then daggone it, he should pay for it. And, And who does Elisha think he is for sparing Naaman and letting him off the hook, Giving him this blessing and grace from God without making him hurt a little bit. So that's part of part of Gehazi's motivation is self-righteousness and judgmentalism. The other's just plain just good old fashioned greed, right? I will run after him and get something from him. right? I'm, I want money, I want clothes, I want stuff. I want things. Verse 21, so, so Gehazi follows Naaman, and Naaman saw that someone was running after him, and he got down from his chariot to meet him. He said, is all well? And he said, all is well. But my master has sent me to say to you, there's just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. So he's lying. That's a lie. Uh... You know, we don't. I mean, we don't know if there really were two men from Ephraim or not. Um, the text doesn't say. Probably not. Uh, but we do know that that Elisha did not send Gehazi to say those things, which is what a, which is what Gehazi said happened. So so Gehazi's lying. Verse twenty three. And Naaman said. Please, accept two talents, right? And he urged him, he tied up two talents of silver in bags of changes of clothing and laid them on his servants and they carried them before Gehazi, right? He was like, I was willing to part with all of this. So yeah, you can have what you ask for and even then some, I'm happy to, to give it to you. And he went, verse 24, he went came to the hill and he took from them, took from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. So Gehazi is now trying to cover it up, Right? Uh, send the witnesses of this uh, devious act, send them away so they don't cross paths with Elisha and tell him what I did, take the evidence, the money, and hide it uh, in in the house so Elisha can't see it, and maybe I won't get in trouble. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? Right, classic question. He asked to a guilty party, right? Do you, you know why I pulled you over? Right, kid with chocolate on his face. What have you been doing out here? And right? you walk downstairs. And then the classic answer from the guilty party your servant went nowhere. Right? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I Haven't been doing anything. I haven't been going anywhere. Nothing has happened. Verse 26. But he said to him, Gehazi, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Bro, I'm a prophet. God gives me special revelation on the regular. Like uh, I, I saw it in real time as it was happening. Are you lying to me, trying to hide it from me? Was this a time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants? Now of all times, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Elisha says, Gehazi, per- it's bad to love money more than God at any time, right? That's the root of all kinds of evil. So that's just bad. But this was particularly bad because the reputation of God among the people, of, of, among the nations, was on the, the line. I had just gotten finished explaining to Naaman via an object lesson of refusing, right, healing him and refusing his gift, I just gotten finished explaining to him that God's grace cannot be bought with the resources of a proud man. It can only be received with the open hands of a humble man. I had just gotten finished telling him that, and then you run after him and you extract money from him, you're undermining the message about the freeness of the grace of God that I was trying to communicate One commentator puts it this way. He says, The most deplorable thing in this episode is that Gehazi distorted the gospel. God's grace was coming free of charge to Naaman, and yet Gehazi tried to put a price on salvation. Gehazi's greed implied that Yahweh was a taker like all of the other false gods that littered the Near East. Grace is free, and we must not distort it. Gehazi's sin was greed, absolutely it was, but Gehazi's sin was particularly bad because it did damage to the reputation of God in the eyes of the world, and that's why his punishment was so severe. He might have said that he loved God, But, but, you know, knowing God wasn't enough. Having a relationship with God wasn't enough. He wasn't content with that. Ultimately, Gehazi loved money more than he loved God. And his reckless pursuit of money and stuff threatened and did violence to the reputation of God. And he ended up with the same leprosy that Naaman had when the story began. Friends, it is profoundly eternally important that you trust in Jesus to save you. But it's also really important that you be content in Christ. That you pursue with reckless abandon that you pursue the rare jewel of Christian contentment at all cost instead of looking to money and stuff for satisfaction. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager from some people like Gehazi, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. At the beginning of the story, Naaman has leprosy. He's sick and dying and numb and, and unable to feel his injuries. He's unaware of the seriousness of his condition. And it's going to get worse and kill him. At the beginning of the story, that's Naaman. At the end of the story, that's Gehazi. None of us here have leprosy. But the Bible's picture of, description of sin looks a lot like leprosy of the heart. Right, Your soul is sick and dying and numb to its effects right? and blind to how it is hurting you and killing you. In the ancient world, if you get leprosy, you die, period. No questions asked. When we sin against God, when our heart is infected with spiritual leprosy, it will kill us. No questions asked. There's no escaping it. There's good news. Years later, centuries later after the story took place, God sent another servant into the world, not the little Israelite servant girl, but another servant, a better servant. And like her, that servant would forgive the sins that were committed against him. But even more so, that servant would would take the punishment for their sins upon himself so that they can be restored and, and made new, right? Naaman is cleansed, Naaman is healed, and his leprosy is transferred to Gehazi. And that transfer points in some small way to the transfer that took place at the cross where the one who knew no sin is made to be sin for us. Where where Christ takes on the leprosy of the world, where Christ is excluded from the presence of God so that His people, so that we might be cleansed and healed and brought near. Jesus took your punishment so that you could have His reward. And all you have to do is come to Him and tr- all Naaman had to do was swim in the Jordan. All you have to do is come to Christ and trust in him. Friends, let's receive the grace of God with humility like Naaman did. Let's love our neighbors, love our enemies like the little Israelite girl did. And let's learn from our mistakes. Let's learn from Gehazi's mistakes and repent of the sin of love of money and instead let's pursue contentment in Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to save us, that you have loved your enemies and forgiven your enemies and given your life and taken the the punishment of your enemies upon yourself so that we can be saved. Lord, we pray that we could trust in you. We pray that we could receive your grace. We pray that we could be content in you. And we pray that we could love others just as you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.